The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, how, how, important, how important is it for Christians to love one another? Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The Mark of the Christian, considered Jesus' words in John 13 verse 35, which read, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He then considered this morning's text, uh, specifically verse 21, where Jesus prayed that they, his followers, may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. From this, Schaefer concluded that if an individual Christian does not show love toward other true Christians, the world has every right to judge that he or she is not a Christian. And even more serious, we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Wow. So again, how important is it for us to love one another in Christian unity? Seems pretty important. Christian unity... Our love for one another says that we belong to Jesus and that the gospel is true. Schaefer called this the final apologetic, the ultimate defense of our faith. So before we consider the weight of this in uh, this morning's text, let's pray together. Father, give us eyes to see, help us to humbly consider what is primary what is truly essential, what is even worth dividing over and what is not. Help us to discern that even though some things may be very important and concerning, they are not issues that ought to divide your church. So Lord, guard us from being unloving or pridefully judging another, someone that you accept, someone that you have called to yourself, that you have sent your son to die for. Someone that you have lovingly adopted as your own. Someone that you say is our brother or sister. So Father, help us to see the importance of what Jesus prayed. And we pray, we ask in his name. Amen. Our focus this morning, uh, our text is John 17. The focus will be verses 20 through 23, but we'll begin our reading at verse 18. And uh, would you stand, since we're all together, stand for the reading of God's word, starting at verse 18. Jesus prayed, as you sent me into the world, so I, I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these, the original disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also, they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them, even as you loved me. This is God's word. You may be seated. And this is a weighty word, right? Uh, this is even uh, mysterious. It's hard to comprehend. And yet, Jesus is pretty clear that we should be united in love. A unity that is a great blessing to us and, and is our witness to the world. So what does, it look, what does this unity look like? Is Christ's church united even though there are many different denominations? And is there compromise? Is there compromise in some areas of Christianity for the sake of unity? Compromise of the truth. And so this is a hard thing for us to consider. We've, we um, began this last section. We've begun this last section of Jesus' prayer this morning where he prays for you. He prays for church the church throughout history and certainly today where he prays for all that believe in him through the word and ministry of those big a apostles like them we are also sent to live in the world sent to represent Jesus and his gospel in various callings in your various roles of life Roles and callings that every Christian has. Gifts that every Christian has. In your workplace, in your home, with your neighbors and family and friends. In support of the church and its ministry. These are all significant ways in which we, we go and we bear witness to the gospel. And yet our calling isn't simply individual parts doing what God designed them to do, but parts that are, that are connected, connected to a body, his church. And Jesus prays for our unity, our connectedness, our wholeness. He says that this, this communicates to, to our mission field. That we belong to Jesus. That Jesus was sent by the Father. Our unity actually says something about the unity within the Godhead. And the Son's willing and humble agreement to come to take on flesh. To be the only way of salvation. The only way to reconcile sinful people to their maker. And this is a... A glorious thing. And in verse 22, Jesus says 
this, this glory is given to his church. And this is a part of our, this is a part of our blessing. To communicate God, to, to have the fruit of his spirit flowing through us. Jesus glorified the Father, and we exist and live to glorify or, or to communicate truth about God. And we don't only do this with uh, true word, words or true teachings, true biblical statements, but we also communicate the truth of God's perfect unity through, through our unity, through loving each other. And when we realize this, how can we not see the weightiness? And shouldn't this motivate us to forgive, to, to be committed, to, to bear with, to encourage one another? Division within the church is not simply a sad and unpleasant thing. But even worse, it communicates a lie about God. When we're not united in love, it tells the world that God is not one. That he is divided and not in perfect harmony with himself. And we, and we might think, really? Uh, would anyone draw that conclusion about God? Just because I don't like that other person uh, in my church? Well, it may be hard for us to see that. But it is what Jesus prayed. He did say that our unity comes from God. And that it, it's for the sake of the world believing in the love of God. So, whether we comprehend it or not, isn't the point. It is what Jesus said it is. And we need to see that our unity is much bigger than ourselves. And we need to believe that this unity is actually possible. It's actually possible because, well, Jesus, pra- Jesus prayed. <laughs> and like I've said in the past several weeks, if, if anyone's prayer is going to be answered, it's Jesus' prayer. So, this is possible because Jesus prayed that it would be so. Jesus set himself apart for our sanctification, our progressively growing into his likeness. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper. We have the inerrant word of God. We are his church built upon the foundation of his apostles. He indwells us. He equips us as we do the work of ministry in our various callings and roles. So yes, it is possible. And why wouldn't we believe that there is unity? And we as a local body, that we can be united as well. So let's be clear. Unity is not, uh, it's not some outward physical structure where one person or pope at, is at the helm. That's not what Jesus had in mind here. Unity is not destroyed because, well, there are many denominations. 
and we disagree about secondary issues. No, Christian unity has to do with what's essential. What's essential. And there is agreement among all these Christian denominations. We are united in the essentials. There is a oneness in the church. We are united. And there's also a a relational aspect to our unity that goes beyond mere doctrinal agreement. A relational unity, unity that should resemble the way in which the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in perfect harmony. Jesus describes our unity as being like the Father in Christ and Christ in the Father so that we may be united in them. And honestly, this is hard to comprehend. Richard Phillips describes this as a mystical, organic unity. Mystical because it transcends our understanding and organic in the sense of a, of a wholeness that's made up of various parts. And, and parts is not a word that we would use in describing the Godhead. But it translates to us. The church is organic in that it's likened to a body with various body parts. The church is like a family made up of different members with different roles. So there's a a sense of plurality and oneness. The way in which the Father and Son relate is, is one. Their desire to glorify or honor the other is the same. There is a unity of purpose with differing roles. And, and this has something to do with how we are to be as his church. How we honor one another. How we appreciate each other's roles and gifts. How we work in, in a singular purpose without seeking our own way But because we're united to God, we together seek and desire his way, his truth. This is what Paul was getting at when he wrote, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is, this organic way of the church is why we react like a body. When there's an injury to one part, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. There's an organic oneness of service and sympathy. Because we are one, we work together, we rejoice together, we hurt together. Another way we would describe our unity is is spiritual. Jesus says in verse 23, I in them and you, Father, in me, that they may become perfectly one. And again, I don't fully comprehend how the Father is in the Son, but I do understand how the Son is in his church. It's a spiritual unity. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And because of this, we're spiritually united to Christ. 
In Ephesians 4, Paul describes us as a body, one body, and we walk in a manner worthy of our calling by the one spirit. And so we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Our unity is not because of an outward physical organization. No, it's a spiritual unity because of the unifying presence of the Holy Spirit. And a third very important and clarifying way in which we are united is unity in the truth. The Spirit indwells those who believe the word of Christ. And the word of Christ was breathed out by the Spirit as he guided the apostles in all truth. And now in verse 20, Jesus prays for those who will believe in him through their word. That they all may be one. This this unity is a unity of belief. A unity in the truth of God's word. And the big lesson this tells us is that Well, truth matters. Doctrine, which is defined as biblical teachings, matters. And so when Christians set aside biblical teachings or truth with the goal of achieving unity, they they contradict Jesus. They contradict the unity that we are to have. Our unity is in the truth. And so if we, if we ignore or avoid biblical truth, there is no real Christian unity. Uh, I don't know about you, but may, maybe you've heard over the years, same thing that I've heard, people exclaiming, doctrine divides. Implying that if we're going to be united, then we'd better avoid biblical teaching because doctrine is not worth it. Doctrine divides. What's most important is that we just get along. So let's just gather. Let's just be nice. Let's avoid any, any discussion of what the Bible teaches. Let's, let's be resigned to, to the thinking that we'll never agree on Christian truth. And so the only way for us to have unity is to do away with doctrine. And now, we'll just be another club with funny hats. If we can agree on which hat, maybe. So, um, there's an appearance of unity, but in reality, it's not Christian unity. Now, to be fair, assuming the best of those who say such things, what I think they really mean is that we should be careful arguing about non-essential doctrines. That we shouldn't argue about these kinds of things in an unloving, ungracious manner, because if we do, then it'll just divide us. Now, my preference, not that my preference matters too much, but my preference would be that we see all of the teachings in God's word as important. Not, not essential, but still, it's God's word. It's important. He's revealing truth to us. So we ought to be people who pursue the truth. So the answer is, is not simply to avoid these secondary 
doctrines, but instead to learn how to, how to debate or discuss in a loving and gracious way for the sake of... We just want to know the truth. The problem isn't doctrine, it's our ungodly, prideful, argumentative attitudes. Doctrine is important. Not all doctrine is essential. That is, if we're wrong about some things, it doesn't mean that we're outside of the Christian faith. But what this implies is that there are other doctrines, other teachings that do define the Christian faith. And if we're wrong about these, then doctrine better divide. It should divide, and that's a good thing. If we're to know what, is, what it is to be a Christian, it should divide on those things. So it should divide so that we know that beliefs like Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses, that they are not simply another Christian denomination, but a non-Christian cult. Doctrine should divide. This is why over the church's history there have been various creeds and confessions to clarify what's true, to defend the faith against various unbiblical heresies that attack essentials like the Trinity and the divine nature of Christ and the necessity of a virgin birth that he's truly human, his physical and bodily resurrection. If the church wasn't willing to argue over doctrine and divide from heresy, then we wouldn't have the truth about God and his salvation. And we'd be lost. So thank God that people were willing to even die for the sake of essential doctrine, essential truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, There are many people in this world who call themselves Christians, yet who, alas, regard the Lord Jesus Christ as nothing but a man. Well, all I can say to this is that I have no fellowship with such people. I have no unity with them, for they take from the very foundation and basis of my faith and my my whole position and standing. What do these people believe? What do these people believe about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is their view of his death? Is it a substitutionary death? Is it the Son of God dying because this is the only way whereby my sins may be forgiven and therefore the essential preliminary to my becoming a child of God and a partaker of the divine nature? If it is essential and the other man says it is not, How can it be possible for there to be unity between us? And the same is true with all these other cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. There is agreement in the essentials that unite all churches as Christian. And there is disagreement over non-essentials that don't and shouldn't destroy this unity. So our unity... It's in the truth, and it also needs to be in our, our humble attitudes and speech and actions concerning brothers and sisters with whom we disagree. So we can and should have 
friendly intramural debates about eschatology or baptism or whether or not, you know, in the eternal state with resurrected bodies, this is something I'm really concerned about, will it have stakes? Big, huge, divisive issues like that. Um, But we can't agree to disagree about the Trinity. Or that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We can't agree to disagree about the gospel. And pretend to be Christian brothers and sisters. Disagreements over things like baptism and communion and spiritual gifts and apologetic methods and worship styles and alcohol and modesty. They may have serious consequences. But they're not essentials that define Christianity. If you ever looked at our church website, you may notice that we make a distinction between common Christian beliefs and our our particular beliefs, and even more beliefs within Bear Creek Church. We did this because we assume people not only want to know that we're actually Christians, um, but that people also want to know what kind of Christian church we are. Cracks me up when I go to church websites and all they have are, are these, we believe in the Trinity, we believe in the D, and it's like, okay, great, you're Christians. <laughs> Doesn't tell me anything about your style or, or particular theological beliefs. So, you know, are we free will Arminians or are we theologically reformed or Calvinists? Do we have a CEO style of church government or a plurality of biblically qualified elders? Are we, are we dispensationalists that read the news and give prophecy updates? Or are we more likely to say something like, Jesus is coming again, we don't know when, live like it's today. So yes, this is a, this is a Christian church. Um, like hundreds of other denominations and styles of churches. We are absolutely united on the essential teachings of Christianity. And though united in what matters the most, we are different. We're different in style, we're different in personality, in liturgy, in areas of theology that, that other true Christian churches don't agree about. And that's okay. I like what Francis Schaeffer said, the real chasm must be between true Bible-believing Christians and others, not at a lesser point. The chasm is not between Lutherans and everybody else, or Baptists and everybody else, or Presbyterians and everybody else. The real chasm is between those who have bowed to the living God and his son, Jesus Christ, And thus also to the verbal, propositional communication of God's word, the scripture, and those who have not. So there is a unity that defines true Christianity. But there are are reasons Jesus prays for our unity as his church. Jesus prays for the unity of his church for the sake of our blessing. It's a blessing. 
Jesus prays in verse 22 that he has given us the glory that the Father gave to him. So what is this glory? It's the manifestation of God's character and blessing. Jesus grants us eternal life, and eternal life is the very blessing of knowing God. It's a knowing that changes us, because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This this change is the blessing of the fruit of the Spirit, which is an expression of God's character lived out in us as we experience a life of joy and peace and love through faith in Jesus. And this blessing is possible because our unity, our our unity, because verse 21 says that our unity is not only like the Father and the Son's unity, unity, but it's actually a part of God's unity. Again, hard to grasp. It's mysterious. So I'll let someone smart like D.A. Carson explain. Maybe this will help and amaze you. He wrote, Christians themselves have been caught up into the love of the Father for the Son. Secure and content and fulfilled because we are loved by the Almighty Himself with the very same love He reserves for His Son. Wow. We experience this blessing as a matter of our unity with one another. I can't think of a stronger appeal to unity than this blessing of God. And likewise, I can't think of a stronger warning to being selfish and pulling away or being divisive within the church. Another important reason for our unity has to do with our witness. Jesus prays, for our unity, so that the world may believe that the Father sent Jesus. So that the world would believe the Father so loved the world that he sent his only Son. So that the world would believe the gospel and be saved. Our unity has to do with the church's witness to a lost and dying world. Again, our unity is not the proclamation of a certain end times view or an understanding of baptism. These things are important for us to know, but they're not so important that Christians can't love one another. We may divide physically in the sense of being in a different local gathering while being absolutely united as Christ's church, loving one another because of the gospel. I I mean, after all, I think in our announcements, we recognize Cornerstone and First Baptist. Love those congregations. Uh, Go to those... I, I haven't missed one of those Cornerstone lectures. They are awesome. Big name speakers, maybe don't recognize this guy, but usually from places like West, like Pastor Dale's alma mater, Westminster... Or, you know, really, really learned, well-spoken, rich lectures. Don't miss it. So our unity has to do with the, with the church's witness to a lost and dying world. It's the, it's, you know, I think of one of my very favorite 
doctrinal debates was between John MacArthur arguing in favor of credo-baptism and R.C. Sproul arguing for pedo or infant baptism. Uh, incredible debate. Love, both, love and respect both of those wonderful, godly teachers. And the reason I love this debate so much wasn't because of the actual arguments that they were making, but because of something they both said at different points in the debate. These men who, who strongly disagree about an important issue clearly love each other. And I think R.C. at one point said, you know, if I'm, if I'm at war battling the issue of the gospel, this is the guy I want by my side. Love that. Unity. Disagree on baptism. There are a lot of things that threaten to divide Christian churches in our day. Important things. And yet things that are not primary. Things that don't have eternal consequences. So it's our great challenge to, well, to discern how to engage with important issues while not forgetting that our primary calling is what Jesus prayed for us. We need to remember that our Christian unity has to do with weighty things, with the blessing of God's love and character in our lives, and with our witness of gospel truth to a dying world. I want to close with a a word of recommendation from Randy Alcorn. He writes, In the 52 years I've known Jesus, I've witnessed countless conflicts between believers, but never more than in the last year. Many have angrily left churches they once loved. Churches are experiencing a a pandemic of of tribalism. Uh, Let me say that again. Churches are experiencing a pandemic of tribalism, blame, and unforgiveness, all fatal to the love and unity that Jesus spoke of. Acknowledging occasional truth and other viewpoints is seen as compromise rather than than fairness and charitability. Sadly, evangelicals sometimes appear as little more than another special interest group, sharing only a narrow unity based on mutual outrage and disdain. This acidic, eager-to-fight negativity highlights Schaefer's point that we have no right to expect unbelievers to to be drawn to the good news when we treat brothers and sisters as enemies. The increase in Christians bickering over non-essentials doesn't seem to be a passing phase. And it injures our witness. Inviting eye rolls and mockery from unbelievers and prompting believers to wonder whether the church hurts more than it helps. Satan is called the accuser of God's family. Too often we do his work for him. His goal is to divide churches and keep people from believing the gospel. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever, uh, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. When we fail to love each other, we are acting like the devil's children. 
the paradigm-shifting revelation Paul shared in Romans 14 is this. While true love and unity are never achieved at the expense of primary biblical truths, they are achieved at the expense of our personal preferences and secondary issues. Paul emphatically states that equally Christ-centered people can have different beliefs which lead to them taking different, even opposite actions in faith. We will not ultimately answer to, I like this line, pay attention. We will not ultimately answer to each other, but we will answer to God concerning each other. Raise your expectations for love and unity in your church. Lower your expectations for them coming naturally. When I reread Schaefer's book, The Mark of the Christian, 50 years later, it spoke to me more deeply than ever. His message rings true. When we call upon God and make concerted efforts to live in humble love and unity, people see Jesus. And some will believe in him. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that this will be true of us, that, that we will live in humble love and unity and that people will see Jesus and believe in him. Thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your church is united over what is essential and we need your spirit to continue the work of sanctification so that we are also united in a way that resembles the unity within the Godhead. Help us to pursue biblical truths while maintaining your character for the sake of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know what you've been thinking. Why is Pastor Brian wearing a jacket? We have something special. I want to invite uh, all the deacons and elders to come up here. We, um, we are going to, I, how long ago was it? It was at least a year ago that we suggested, oh, good. Thank you, Pastor Jim. That we suggested some deacon candidates to you. Um, and the, the elders recognize, we suggested these elders to you. Let's see, where, where are Andrew Getman? This is like a, it's like a ball game. Come on down, Andrew. Andrew Getman, Sean Herberholz. There you are. Justin Knight. Uh, uh, Gabe Morgan. Where's Gabe? There's Gabe. Here, you guys get center. I'll, I'll be behind you. That's all right. A little more forward. Best you've ever looked. Yeah. Yeah, best I've ever looked. And, and uh, Sean Thomas. Do we have a picture of Sean? You know, Sean couldn't, Sean was sick, couldn't be here. I think he just wants his own uh, occasion, you know, big head, Sean. And uh, so we asked you, the congregation, and we thank you. Uh, we asked for your input. Was it a year ago? It's been a long time. Uh, we asked for your input. We've, we've, as scripture encourages us or tells us to do, we've tested these men. 
uh, by letting them serve as deacons in order to prove their, their suitedness and their calling for this role. And this morning is our time to officially install them as deacons of Bear Creek Church. So, it's clear to us that these are godly men, good examples to the church body. They meet the biblical qualifications stated in 1 Timothy 3. Let me read those to you. Deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. We're thankful to God for these men, for the blessing that they are, the gifts that they have, their, their love for you, their love for the church. And I know it's the desire of, of the elders and, and current deacons. Um, it's our desire to love and serve you. So, let me just say to you, please ask us. If you need anything, please. Um, my experience with these guys, they're, they're all humble, not argumentative. Uh, they want to serve and love you. And so, so many times that we're just private people and we don't really let others know how they can be a help practically or spiritually to come pray with you. So let us know. I know that's the heart of these guys and the heart of all these, all these guys up here. So don't hesitate to ask. And uh, brothers, let me, let me ask a, a, a long statement, and you can reply with, I do or I will, with God's help, something along that line. So brothers, before Almighty God, and in the presence of this congregation, will you humbly and cheerfully serve the people of Bear Creek Church with, with Christ's love and care for his people? And will you minister to those in need? And strive to advance God's kingdom. We will. Great. By God's grace. And let me ask you, congregation, will you respect and pray for these deacons? Will you... Actually, let's stand. I'm sorry. I should have done this earlier. If you're in agreement, then again, never mind. <laughs> Not all of us can stand. So, uh, so, so to you... Will you respect and pray for these deacons? Will you make us aware of your needs as we seek to serve and be a blessing to you? We will. Great. Uh, we've asked uh, Deacon Ron Green to, to come and pray for these new deacons. Testing? Okay. Um, when Brian asked me to pray for you guys... Um, didn't know really where to go with this, but your sermon today and also um, talking about humility, I want to read this one scripture here. It's Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity in the spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these five guys and their hearts. And Lord, we just uh, lift them up to you. I pray for their families, Father, as they step into this role of being a deacon, Father. There are sometimes sacrifices and time to be um, used and taken away from family. But on the other hand, it's this is our family here, the whole church, Lord. And we thank you for these guys and the humility that they do have that they show. They weren't looking for this. They just naturally do serve, Lord, and we thank you for that. I might just uh, lift them up that this would be a joy and a blessing to them and their families. I pray for special protection, Father, as um, when you step into service and you are doing things for the church, the enemy doesn't like that, Father. So we pray for protection for both their, uh, their whole family. And uh, the guys that are standing behind them with their hands on, Lord, that we, we lift them up to you. We thank you that we have uh, broadened our team. And we just uh, ask that as we go forward, as Brian said, you would, we would be a blessing to the church and that uh, you uh, church members uh, would uh, feel free to come and uh, speak with us if you need to and ask for help. We're here. We thank you. This is an honor and a privilege, Lord, to serve this body. And uh, we just ask that you bless each and every one here. And we thank you for this time. Thank you for these guys, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Um, let's uh, let's close with a doxology. Justin, you wanna you wanna lead us out? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. a good thing to cut it while I'm singing. So uh, may God bless you according to the prayer of Jesus that as the Father is in Christ and He is in the Father and we in God that, that we His church may be one so that the world may believe in the love of God who sent His Son. Amen. Let's celebrate with pizza. All right. Oh, and uh, and um, uh, boys, is it 8 to 18? You have a reputation of eating too much. So you go to the back of the line. Everyone else, you are dismissed to, to eat.